Welcome back to the Power Hour radio show. Ladies and gentlemen, it is eight minutes past the hour, caring about your world and trying to do the next right and honorable thing. We are so excited, as usual, to be joined once again by Mr. James Corbett of The Corbett Report and also of FukushimaUpdate.com. Now, James Corbett uh, takes time away from his family and busy schedule to join us every other week here on the Power Hour. And I'll tell you, if you are trying to learn about anything going on in this world, you would be hard-pressed to find a more accurate or uh, insightful individual than James Corbett. Uh, He's been living in Japan and working there since 2004. Uh, He also contributes to the Boiling Frog Post, as well as the two websites we mentioned that he runs. Uh, As I said, just a very, very smart young man. Appreciate him being here. James, thanks for coming on to the show today. Well, thank you very much for having me. Always a pleasure to be here. But uh, but Joyce, you sound a little bit under the weather today, your voice. (laughs) Oh, oh, JD, sorry about that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. That was a Joyce imposter. We were trying to see if everybody would buy it, but nobody has. Yeah, right. it was, it was anyway, a good, good to have job. you join us. T- <laughs> good to have you joining us today. And uh, yeah, JD's doing an amazing job. He's uh, really a lot smarter than uh, the average thirty-six-year-old. So I, I got to give him a lot of credit for that. Uh, well, he, he has still... a couple of years on me, so I guess he can call me a young man. I was going to object right, to that. That's right. But... <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I was still pretty much in the fetal position at the time that uh, you know he was out there learning all this stuff. So I'm glad to have his. Uh, um, a lot of people are saying, gee, we get a little more testosterone on the Power Hour program now. So, <laughs> Well, and Joyce is nice enough to let me uh, kind of get a chance to chat with you because she knows what a big fan of yours I am, yes. uh, to be honest, James. So I, I look for any opportunity I have to speak with you. I'm just going to kind of jump in. Uh, and with everything that's going on in the crazy world today, I mean, we could talk about uh, this World War III thing that might happen. We could talk about uh, Syria. We could talk about Venezuela. We could obviously talk about Fukushima. But I think... The most important thing and what people really want to know about from you, James, is uh, why is Monica Lewinsky back in the news? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah, let's get to the important stuff. Let's talk about the important stuff for a second. (laughs) The blue dress. Okay, we'll skip Monica Lewinsky because no one really matters. But let's talk about, for just a second, what is going on at Fukushima? Because we always spend a lot of time talking about other things and then end up on that. And I want to make sure that we're up to date on that. So if you could start us off with that today and a good update, that would be great. All right. Well, I suppose um, if people go to FukushimaUpdate.com on the front page, they're going to find a few stories talking about uh, the fallout from from Fukushima and some different studies and calculations that have been made, including a new study examining uh, uranium-236 and plutonium isotopes in black substances collected from roadsides in Fukushima Prefecture, um, which is an interesting report talking about some of the uh, the plutonium which has been discovered in, uh, in Fukushima, which of course is indicative of the fact that there was core material that was blasted out during these explosions, which again is, I, I think, perfectly understandable. I think everyone probably who saw that expected that to be the case, but uh, obviously the Japanese government and TEPCO haven't been interested in telling people about that or, or giving much details. So here's a new study um, uh, uh, that was just published talking about this uh, from from some scientists at uh, Hiroshima University. So uh, so that's up there on the front page. You can read about that. Also, uh, the Fukushima cesium-137 levels were 50% higher than previously estimated, according to a new estimate wow. from some new Japanese uh, research that's just come out. Um, so again, uh, it, and for people who've been keeping track of this, basically the original estimates of how many, um, how many 
terabecquerels of radiation were released um, during the initial uh, stages of this crisis have been continually upgraded. I think they've. Uh, this is probably the the sixth or seventh story that I can remember um, in the last few years of, oh yeah, by the way, that number that we told you before, it was too small. It should actually be larger. <laughs> and this one is quite a significant 50% higher than previously estimated. Oh, so again, God. details of that are up there on the front page. Um, I suppose some good news, or at least not bad news, also up there. For example, a uh, study finds no evidence of ocean-borne Fukushima radiation along West Coast, um, which is an interesting result. And we'll see if, if, when, and how that starts to change over the course of the year as people expect the, uh, the main wave of initial Fukushima radiation to really start reaching the West Coast this year. So we'll see if, um, if there are some changes in that data. But of course, that depends on people helping to continue to fund such things as our radioactive ocean, um, which is doing spot testing of places along the West Coast to, make, to, to check for radiation because there is no government uh, agency that's doing so. And another piece of non non bad news. Oh, let me just add. Let me, before you move on. Uh, so the, the the people that did that, uh, there is no radiation problem in the ocean. Was uh, TEPCO or what? The Kelp Watch 2014 project is co-headed by really? Dr. Stephen Manley, a marine biology professor at Long Beach State, and has gathered kelp samples from as far north as Kodiak Island, Alaska, to as far south as Baja, California, to determine the extent of possible radiation contamination from the Fukushima disaster. So, yes, this is a uh, this is uh, being done through a Long Beach State uh, uh, professor. And it is specifically focusing on kelp samples. So again, take that. So, for are you believing that there really is no radiation on the West Coast? Then I don't know if I would say that. Um, I, I I do believe that it is probably at at this point at very small or or almost undetectable levels. But again, it depends what you're measuring and how you're measuring it. So if you're measuring kelp, it might be undetectable. But of course, we also recently had a story about uh, albacore tuna, I believe, which has just been confirmed to have. Um, radiation from Fukushima. So again, it, it really depends what you're what you're examining, and uh, and different biological species will have different uptakes and intakes. So uh, again, take it for what it's worth and put it in co- context of all of the other studies that are coming out as well. Um, but I also wanted to get to another piece of not terrible news. Uh, we've been talking for some time about Reactor Four and specifically the spent fuel pool in Reactor 4, the Reactor Four building, which has been uh, well a point of concern for a long time, as there's over 1,500 nuclear fuel rods uh, in that spent fuel pool that have been teetering on the edge there and and uh, in a very um, precarious position as that building, as we've talked about before, is uh, is not structurally stable and could at some point come down in the event of another earthquake and send, send all of that radioactive material out into the atmosphere. TEPCO has been removing those fuel rods slowly and steadily throughout the year, and they now report 53% of the rods have been removed. So we are now over halfway through the removal process. Wow. So that, uh, at any rate, is, again, not bad news. Well, I wanted to touch back on that report that we were just talking about with the the no evidence of Fukushima-borne radiation, because I was looking at reports just coming out last week that scientists are still pretty perplexed about all the sea stars that are that are dying off in a kind of an unusual manner, and you know they're they're looking at every other possibility under the sun. It seems like other than uh, radiation, and I just wondered what your thoughts were on that. Do you think if you lived on the west coast, would you be making any kind of changes to your life right now? Well, I live on the east coast of Japan, and I can tell you that we are avoiding seafood unless we can tell it is coming from 
well, nowhere near here. Um, so that that <laughs> would be basically what I'm what I would say. But on on specifically on that issue of the uh, starfish wasting disease or starfish wasting syndrome, as it's been dubbed. Uh, that one in particular is interesting because, in fact, it, it goes back as far as 1997 in the documentary record uh, off the coast of Southern California. And uh, there, ha- there was, in fact, a study uh, that was published in 2009 and the data was collected in 2008 examining this phenomenon and, and asking what might, might be behind it. And, of course, that was three years before Fukushima ever even happened. So I think that's something that we should take into account when we're talking about this, uh, this phenomenon. It is being reported on a lot of Fukushima-related websites as if it is necessarily or there's that it could be the only possible explanation but again this is a phenomenon that was occurring before fukushima ever even happened so um i think we should be at least taking taking that information to account when we're when we're yeah, oh, absolutely explanations absolutely and i had no idea that that had to started back that far so i'm glad that i brought that up and i'm glad you were able to clarify that uh for us today um i want to move on to the economy and uh really what i want to talk about is what it seems to me that that the uh, the banking system, the idea of the uh, the fraudulent banking system, seems to be making. We talked about the Guardian article last time you were on, and then there was another article uh, last week uh, talking about how the uh, you know Barclays is going to create this bad bank, and uh, it just seems like the the push towards the global economy failure is almost part of the agenda now. Like they're they're letting all the cats out of the bags. They're they're really taking opportunities to show how poorly the financial system is put together. And I'm wondering if you see that as kind of an agenda or an unraveling, so to speak, of what's going on around us. Well, I think that's a very astute observation. I think that's exactly part of the long-term agenda. And I don't know how far along we are in that agenda, but absolutely, they have to dismantle and break the system and show that it's broken before they can fix it with their pre-planned solutions. So absolutely, I think it is definitely part of their long-term plans to basically reveal a bit that the, uh, the behind the curtain, it's really just a little man pulling some levers. And, uh, and what will we do about this? Oh, well, we must need a strong global in- international financial authority that can, that can track these things. And one story that I've been tracking for, for quite a while now um, at least back to last year, was the the G20 was promoting this idea of it's kind of this global tax uh, evasion crackdown, and the OECD has been putting this together. And now I believe they are up to 47 nations who are signatories to this deal, including now Singapore and Switzerland, two countries that are known for their bank secrecy, have now signed on to this deal that is going to force um, the, the the signatories, all of these nations, to share the, the intimate financial details of their citizens, including uh, bank balances, dividends, interest income, sales proceeds... Um, uh, used to calculate capital gains tax. All of this is now going to be basically um, subject to international scrutiny in order, of course, to crack down on the big multinational corporations that are u- using um, tax uh, tax havens to avoid taxes in their own countries. Of course, this might also, I suppose, pick up the, you know, the, the bank accounts of average individuals and, and might, uh, <laughs> but but that's probably just, just you know, part of the, uh, that's not really <laughs> part know? of the plan. I mean, uh, of course, I, I think have... we, know, we know what this is really about. I mean, this is really about creating the, the institutions and the infrastructure for the global tax grid. A global tax grid can't go into place without the international architecture, and that's what they're putting into place right now. Wow. We'll be back after this four-minute break with the Power Hour, James Corbett. 
CorbettReport.com. Sign up for the Corbett Report and also uh, Financial uh, Newscaster. We'll be back after the Financial Thank you for joining us. 24 minutes after the hour. I got to apologize that the internationalforecaster.com, uh, James uh, writes for International Forecaster and also for Corbett Report and Fukushima Updates. Um, You know, we were talking about bad bank, good bank, and I just love this because we go down the lowest common denominator because we're not smart enough to figure out like if they would name it anything else. So everything is named by good or bad, and that helps us who are not very smart to figure that out. But I like the idea that at Wikipedia, honestly, if you – this is no lie. If you go to bad bank, it says see bank fraud. (laughs) It does, James. Uh, well, that's that's pretty apt. Did I hey, blow you away with that? You did, actually. I had no idea. <laughs> it says C-Bank fraud. Yeah, mm. I thought that was pretty clever. Mm. Uh, but, you know, what is this good bank, bad bank situation? To be honest, I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't really know. <laughs> you're, you're kind of springing this on me. I, I oh, really? No oh, yeah. you haven't heard about the bad bank? I have well, not. What they do is they put all their bad liabilities in a bad bank and put all their good stuff in a good bank. And then they let the bad bank implode. Seriously, if you go to a Wikipedia, there's a Wikipedia on it. But Mm -hmm. uh, I just find that fascinating that that's how we handle things now. Uh, It's like we kind of just like, you know, kill all the bad people, call them bad people or bad terrorists and kill them and put all your liabilities in one bank and then let that just go by the wayside. And then you don't have to worry about it anymore. And and, I mean, mean, we've seen that on a macro scale happening with, uh, for example, the the housing bubble popping in, in the middle part of the last decade. Of course, what I mean, what was that? all about it was about the toxic mortgage derivatives that were being yes. made out of the the uh the, the <laughs> i i want to use a word that i shouldn't use on the radio um on <laughs> uh, the doo-doo sandwiches that were being sold by these uh the these uh banks and that were being certified as triple a you know gold material by the, uh, the the ratings agencies what did they end up doing with all of that well they ended up selling a lot of it to the federal reserve through quantitative easing and the you know the qe3 program and all of this so uh, it's the very similar concept. Just get rid of the the bad stuff, and uh, all you're left with is the good stuff. And uh, oh yeah, That's the bad right. stuff is held by the uh, by the American people, technically. But uh, who cares? Yeah, about that? yeah. And and that's exactly what they did. They put all the derivatives in the bad bank also. So mm-hmm. um, it, it's amazing how they can just conveniently make a few categories and everything's okay. Yeah, it's, a, it's definitely an interesting tactic to create an entire bank, load your derivatives into it, and then implode it. But it is nice of them at least to let us know that it's coming down the pike, which I think kind of leads us back to the conversation we were having about, you know, the, the necessary evil of, of bringing down the, you know, the... F- fractional reserve lending system and uh, in order to get a global tax farm, which is kind of, I think, what you were alluding towards uh, before the break. Did you have anything else you wanted to add to that point? Well, I guess I could just say that, I mean, the idea of a global tax of some form or another has obviously been kicked around for years now. A lot of it at the UN talking about a global carbon tax or talking about the Robin Hood tax of uh, taxing um, financial transactions at a small enough rate that it wouldn't hurt individual players, but it would hurt the, the big financial institutions and, uh, and that kind of thing. So we've heard a, a lots of different ideas about ways to do this. The point, I think, really the point of this is, of course, they're going to try to bring in some kind of tax that the majority of 
people can get behind. Oh, well, it's just going to, to get the uh, the 0.01%. It's not going to get us. So, okay, that's fine. Uh, but of course, that's really just the foot in the door. The same way the income tax was really, it was only for an emergency wartime situation and it would only be for a, a you know temporary measure and it would only be a couple of percentage points and now look where we are. So I, I think the, the whole point of this is really just to get the structures in place because once that's done, then the institutional uh, momentum is there and uh, try breaking that. That's, I mean, it's basically impossible once it's been put in place. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting, too, because they're kind of coming at it from all sides. You know, we had the article today about uh, Pope Francis is calling for a redistribution of wealth and trying to. So he's kind of coming at the guilt side, saying, uh, we think it's time for everybody to redistribute wealth. And Joyce and I both said, we'll wait and see what the Vatican does if they redistribute their wealth. <laughs> yeah. We'll, yeah, exactly. we'll get in line behind them. But since we're on the topic of economic stuff, I'm wondering if you have new insights into uh, Bitcoin on, on the Asian side of the world there and uh, or any of the cryptocurrencies, if you've seen anything um, moving and shaking that you think is uh, worth noting. Well, as a matter of fact, yes. There was some interesting developments uh, in China just in the last uh, week or two. Uh, In fact, we've seen 11 banks now, I believe, in total that have complied with a uh, a, a People's Bank of China uh, ruling on Bitcoin that hasn't been made public. I mean, no one actually knows if this if it exists, and if so, what it actually says. But the rumor is that back in December, the PBOC basically came out with a ruling saying that uh, banks wouldn't shouldn't be uh, uh, holding any uh, accounts with anyone who is using those accounts for the purpose of exchanging Bitcoin. And so they have, uh, there are now 11 banks that are supposedly complying with this ruling, including the latest, the ICBC, which is the largest bank in the world by uh, assets and by market capitalization. So uh, so pretty significant. And yet, in the two days after that announcement, the price of Bitcoin in China actually went up. So uh, it never seems to do what you expect it's going to do. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay tuned to the Power Hour. This is Joyce. And JD. Right back with James Corbin. And uh, today we're being joined by the spectacularly informative uh, James Corbett of uh, thecorbettreport.com and also fukushimaupdates.com. And James, before the break, we were talking about Bitcoin and uh, the 11 banks in China that are going along with this super secret underground uh, not sure if it's real ruling that has come out of the uh, the central bank of China. Uh, but I, as you said also, uh, that even though while that's going on, China seems to be snapping up Bitcoins like crazy. I'm at fiatleak.com right now. And I don't know if you've ever been to this site, James, but it's a real-time uh, w- uh, web uh, map that shows the entire world and how many Bitcoins each country is buying. And if you go there now, the flow of Bitcoins going into China is just crazy. It's always again, crazy. Again, yeah, it's always, it always crazy. Is. They're just buying it up like crazy. So I want to know, in your opinion, what what does this uh, what does it mean? What does it mean that that some of these banks are kind of going along with this ruling, but while at the same time they're soaking up Bitcoins like crazy? Well, evidently, it doesn't mean much. Um, and the, <laughs> the people of China are not really, uh, they don't really care. And another great example of that actually came this, this past weekend. In fact, the, the Chinese uh, central bank crackdown and the, the supposed rumored um, compliance date for, for the banks to be in compliance with this ruling on Bitcoin was supposedly May 10th, which just happened 
coincidentally, to coincide with the Global Bitcoin Summit taking place in Beijing. So uh, there was, there is, there has been this past weekend, a major summit that included uh, a bunch of international speakers, including Roger Veer, who I had on the Corbett Report a couple of weeks ago to talk about Bitcoin, um, and also some some major players in the Bitcoin uh, exchanges in China, including Bobby Lee of BTC China was scheduled to be at this conference. Uh, because of this crackdown and the fact that it, the, the, even a Chinese exchange recently uh, closed down, um, in fact, just a couple of days ago, days ago, uh, shuttered operations because of the uh, the increasingly negative environment. Um, and Bobby Lee pulled out of this global Bitcoin summit saying, I will, don't worry, I will be a good Bitcoiner and I will not, uh, you know, encourage excessive speculation, etc. And I will not uh, be, uh, I will not promote Bitcoin too much in public and things like that to, uh, mm-hmm. in good proper Chinese democracy fashion. Um, but even so, the Bitcoin summit was uh, a, a huge success. Uh, it was a 400-seat auditorium, and it was completely full for the first day um, for Roger Veer and Aaron Koenig and uh, Wang Wei and some of the other speakers there. And basically, the according to the reports on Coindesk.com and some other sources, basically, it was uh, the, the, the atmosphere in the room was people didn't really care about the, the regulatory steps that the PBOC was taking. The only question is how people will transact and how people will buy and sell Bitcoin, given all of the the hurdles that are being put in their place. But no one seemed to be dissuaded from from the idea of participating in Bitcoin because of all of this. So it is a very strange phenomenon. And maybe that speaks to the types of people who get involved in Bitcoin are the types of people who probably don't care too much about government regulations and, and rulings anyway. They're the type of people who want to find ways around that. So so mm-hmm. it, it, however it's going to work, it's it seems to be working um, and see, seems to be continuing. As you say, fiatleak.com um, is showing a lot of... A lot of uh, Bitcoin uh, traveling into China for some reason. Isn't it, that it? it really does, and yet, the, and still, the value of Bitcoin's been really steady around the four and a half, you know, four hundred fifty dollar mark for really since the Mount Gox thing happened for a few months now. So um, this is I'm just always interested in what's going on with. The, me, how long do you think it'll be before you can pay your taxes in Bitcoins? Actually, um, there was an interesting um, ruling by the Federal Election Commission just in the last uh, week or two that apparently now they're going to be allowing uh, political donations uh, through Bitcoin. So um, the FEC made this ruling, but of course there are some stipulations. Of course, there are not going to be anonymous donations. That won't be um, possible. And uh, I guess the the uh, the political operatives will have to screen these donations to make sure that they're not part of some sort of illegitimate or there's no evidence of illegality whatever that means exactly and uh and apparently you can now donate uh, politically through bitcoin so um yeah. So it's not a huge step before we can imagine this becoming a more um common form of interaction even with government and uh that's i mean that's a pretty interesting step right there and and that seems to me to speak once again to the phenomenon that i think we've seen in in recent months and weeks uh of the u.s government agencies uh basically treating bitcoin trying to i think trying to subsume bitcoin trying to to capture what's happening in in this market in some way or, or contain it 
and uh, by basically allowing all of these types of things and, and allowing the, these uh, political donations and other things, but of course always coming with the, the stipulations, well, you know, I mean, you, you can't use anonymity when you do this. You have to shed your anonymity, etc. So there will always be regulations and stipulations. And, and I think further signs of the, the kind of mainstreamizing of the Bitcoin community, um, the Winklevoss twins, a.k.a. the people who supposedly think they, they founded Facebook, um, are uh, now setting up an ETF that is going to be openly exchanged, a Bitcoin ETF. So now now the casino economy, the gambling derivatives casino economy is coming to Bitcoin. Um, yay. <laughs> so and well, explain, you know, explain, and would you explain what that ETF means on using Bitcoins or gold ETFs? What does that really mean to a lot of people that might not understand? Right. ETF is exchange traded fund. So it's a, an investment fund traded on stock exchanges. Uh, it holds assets, stocks, commodities, bonds, um, and it trades close to its net, val- net value over the course of the trading day. Um, it's, uh, it, they, they track as a stock uh, index, as a bond index. And uh, basically, it's it, it's the way, for example, when we talk about a gold ETF, we're talking about the way uh, paper gold, the idea that you don't actually physically have a piece of gold in your hand, but you have the piece of paper that says you have a claim on a piece of gold somewhere in the world. And that's, of course, the way the manipulation starts and the way it comes in and the way we get uh, the markets where some people are estimating as many as 100 claims on ounces of gold as for every ounce of gold that actually exists in the world. And that's where you get a spot price of gold, which I believe now is hovering around the $1,302 mark, um, whereas it should be much, much higher than that um, if we were going by simple uh, uh, supply and demand. So with Bitcoin ETFs, um, the ETF obviously going to be denominated in Bitcoin and going to be tracking the Bitcoin index. So again, it's just more kind of speculation and uh, and and uh, leverage and things that aren't that don't pertain to reality. And this is the casino the casino economy that's come more and more into play over the past several years, and of course was a key part of the entire housing market meltdown in uh, the last decade. Mm-hmm. Well, we talked about you know if Bitcoin is going to survive long term, that it still needs to have tradeability. So I think that that was kind of a for a foregone conclusion that we were going to see some sort of casino element. But I think an IOU for a fiat IOU is kind of we're getting a little redundant with our IOUs at this point. But James, I want to I want to switch gears uh, to something completely different. And I hope you're ready because uh, we have a lot of new listeners, and I do really want to get into what's actually really serious right now. Uh, and for the newer listeners out there, or people who may not have been following the story. I want to give the Benghazi background. I want to get us up to date with what's actually going on there. And then I want your opinion on this new uh, Senate Select Committee, uh, the Trey Gowdy thing, whether or not you think that that is uh, going to go someplace productive or if this is just another smokescreen kind of diversion. But if we could bring everybody up to date on Benghazi quickly and then talk about current events, I think that'd be really helpful for everyone. Right. Okay. So for people who uh, don't remember, September 11th, 2012 in the evening time uh, in Benghazi, there was a, a, a diplomatic mission that included U.S. Ambassador Christopher Stevens and some other uh, uh, diplomatic representatives who were uh, were there at the diplomatic mission and when it was attacked by a group. Um, I, I think the estimates were somewhere around 150 men um, who were identified as being with an Al-Qaeda-linked group um, eventually. Uh, the, and and they, they stormed the diplomatic mission, and the, the story is that they killed Ambassador Stevens and, uh, and another uh, diplomatic representative. And eventually there was a, a CIA annex just about a mile away from that diplomatic mission where some uh, some uh, Navy, ex-Navy SEAL 
security contractors for the CIA ended up uh, showing up at the diplomatic mission and fighting off the the attackers and then getting those uh, the, the the bodies and and some of the the people who were there at the diplomatic mission back to the CIA annex the uh, the attackers followed them there and ended up killing two of those security contractors who had uh, helped in that firefight so uh, in in the end four people died and this was a big political scandal because, of course, it happened right there on the cusp of the 2012 election and uh, the, the whole Obama-Romney uh, sideshow uh, distraction that was happening at the time. And, of course, the question was, well, what did the commander-in-chief know? When did he know it? How, you know, what were they doing to protect this diplomatic mission, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. So, of course, foreseeing that, uh, that entire uh, uh, debate, uh, Susan Rice, Ambassador Stu- Susan Rice, got up on the Sunday talk show circuit and was talking about how this attack was part of a... Uh, a group of protests that were happening throughout the region uh, over a YouTube video that insulted the Prophet Muhammad. There were all these uh, protests taking place. This was just another one of them. Uh, we since have learned, of course, that, uh, that not only was that not true, this was, this was not in any way related to those protests, but that the White House specifically knew this. And and uh, one of the, the latest um, smoking guns, I guess, and the reason that this is back in the news, there was a, uh, a group of documents that were released by Judicial Watch a couple of weeks ago, including an email email from Ben Rhodes, who was uh, part of the the national security wing of the Obama White House, who wrote an email to Susan Rice uh, as she was preparing for her Sunday talk show appearances to basically say, yes, please say it was about the, the video. And uh, this is significant because, again, this is supposedly the smoking gun. Look, the White House was trying to cover it up. They knew it was an al-Qaeda attack, and they weren't keeping us safe from al-Qaeda or something along those lines. Um, and that's what really this this new special committee is going to be about. They're, uh, they subpoenaed uh, John Kerry. I believe he's going to be testifying. All of this. So so this is what it's uh, what what's going to happen politically in the coming weeks, and I'm sure we're going to see a lot more about this in the news. I think this really is distraction um, and smokescreen because, of course, the real story of Benghazi is, was, and always has been the CIA and what they were doing in Benghazi and why there was CIA personnel, as yes. uh, is even CNN reported last August, swarming all over Benghazi that evening and uh, in the weeks prior as well, and what they had at the CIA annex, why there was that CIA annex, uh, what they were doing there, why the CIA, in it was revealed late last year, again, I believe by CNN, that uh, the CIA is conducting monthly polygraph tests of its personnel who have knowledge of the Benghazi operations to make sure they're not spilling any secrets to the media. All of this wow. unprecedented secrecy going on over it. What were they really doing there? And uh, there are some whistleblowers that that have come out over the uh, the past couple of years, including uh, Lieutenant Colonel Anthony Schaefer, who people might remember as the person who blew the whistle on Able Danger, which identified mm-hmm. some of the 9-11 supposed hijackers before 9-11, etc. Uh, also, uh, uh, Tosh Plumley, who was a CIA contract pilot who uh, participated in and helped blow the whistle on Iran-Contra, so someone who knows something about these types of operations. These types of people have been blowing the whistle on the fact that Benghazi and the diplomatic mission there was really, and specifically the CIA personnel working there, were, were specifically working to secure the uh, the various arms and uh, Stinger missiles and other things that were floating around Libya at the time of the NATO um, uh, bombing of that country, and to make sure that those weapons were then transferred to uh, Syria to help fund the al-Qaeda jihadists there who um, mm. are trying to overthrow Assad. This is what they're trying to cover up, because again, this is kind of like an Iran-Contra of, uh, of the 21st century. I mean, we have this gun-running two terrorists that uh, that is obviously quite a big no-no. And the reason why this is 
uh, being covered up by both sides is because, of course, the Republicans and the high-ranking Republican congressmen and senators were briefed in their own committee meetings about this. They knew what was going on, and they can't uh, reveal their part of this because, again, it's just one big mafia system and they don't want to upset the mafia table. So I think that's the real Benghazi scandal, and I don't expect these committee meetings to go anywhere near this. I don't think we're going to see the truth of that coming Mm -mm. out through this type of process. You know, the Moriarty's who've been a guest on this program talked about that because they had lived in Libya and they know exactly what happened. We interviewed a gentleman who was on the power hour who lived across the street from that CIA safe house or whatever you want to call it, the CIA annex. And he told the whole story about what happened and it was juxtaposed totally 190 degrees or 80 degrees out of phase of what happened uh, with the CIA story. Uh, you know, one of the official CIA right. And stories. I believe the Moriarty's pointed out that uh, that uh, Ambassador Stevens had been meeting with the Turkish ambassador the day, uh, the day that he was murdered. And in fact, that he was murdered as part of a hit to keep him from blowing the whistle on all of the uh, the gun running mm-hmm. that was happening there. So a, a much, much bigger story. And the Moriarty's are just, just one of the sources that we can get that from. Interesting. And I think the very fact that a U.S. ambassador got killed says a lot. And the fact that they allowed his picture uh, of him to be drugged through the streets or as he was being drugged through the streets says a lot also because that does not happen unless that is part of the agenda. And I think that was yeah. a message to other ambassadors. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, you, this is what happens. And I think that that's the type of thing that uh, that could be read between the lines. Because, again, you're exactly right. That wouldn't happen uh, if if this was a genuine terrorist attack. This only happens when it's uh, when it's part of a setup. And uh, I think that's exactly what happened. We, we saw a setup happen um, from start to finish. And part of that was, in fact, the, the standing down of U.S. military. Because, of course, AFRICOM did find out about the operation as it was unfolding. I think the uh, the people who were trying to uh, to fight off the attackers from the, the, the security personnel who came from the CIA annex, I don't think that was part of the script. I don't think they were supposed to interfere. I think they ignored a stand-down order, and that's why it unf- unfolded the way it did. I think this was supposed to be a much, uh, much quieter hit, and it ended up spinning out of control. So I think that's why we're still seeing talk about it uh, at this point. Hmm. It's interesting, too, because uh, Kerry came out last week and said that he is not planning on uh, cooperating with a subpoena. So it'll be interesting to see what what actually happens with this whole committee and Trey Gowdy and everything. We've got to go to a three-minute break, and we will come back uh, to be joined by Mr. James Corbett once again. A couple more questions for him. CorbettReport.com. Please subscribe. It is amazing. We'll be back three minutes. Stay tuned for the Power Hour. Joyce. And J.D. Welcome back to the Power Hour, ladies and gentlemen. 54 minutes past your hour, caring about your world and doing the next right and honorable thing. We are joined today with Mr. James Corbett, super genius, CorbettReport.com and FukushimaUpdates.com. I would highly recommend if you want to learn about anything in the world, go to CorbettReport.com. Start following what this man is doing because he is so insightful. James, we were talking about whistleblowers and uh, Benghazi and uh, that situation. And I just wanted to touch on that again, see if there was anything else that you wanted to follow up on with your predictions for what this uh, Trey Gowdy-oriented committee is going to be focusing on, since they're not going to be focusing Leave on the no truth. Leave no stone unturned investigation. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. No, um, uh, well, I, I, as I say, I think this is basically going to 
play completely into that, oh, did, did they protect us in, from Al-Qaeda or not type of narrative. It's, of course, uh-huh. just the old war on terror type of, uh, of back and forth between the Republicans and Democrats and did the commander-in-chief keep us safe type rhetoric. So I'm not expecting it to go beyond that. It's interesting to see uh, John Kerry uh, refusing the, uh, the, the, the subpoena. I didn't actually see, catch that. So it will be very interesting to see what happens with regards to that, I suppose, um, just from a procedural perspective. But again, whether he testifies or not, I don't think it makes much of a difference. And of course, he wasn't Secretary of State when this happened. So of course, he would only be appearing, I suppose, as representative of the State Department rather than someone who has any personal knowledge of what was happening there. So so again, mm-hmm. I mean, take it for what it's worth. And I'm not particularly going to be following it all that closely. If anything important develops, of course, I'll be covering it. But I, I'm not, again, I'm not expecting any really big uh, uh, new developments from this. Okay. Uh, Joyce, I'm sure, and um, many of our listeners also are concerned or uh, interested in in the sudden price of gold going up today. It seems like it's up about $14 right now. Do you have any uh, predictions or comments on the on the gold market right now? Um, I, 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 it's difficult to say, obviously, in times like this, because, of course, it could be all sorts of things. Um, if, the, if there's any news today that might have uh, played a part in this, it might have been that uh, the, the fact that the apparently the pro-Russian side won in the Easter, Eastern uh, Ukrainian elections or the referendum that they just held. So um, that, that could obviously indicate that there is going to be a greater amount of destabilization in Ukraine and perhaps the splitting of the country. Um, just as a type of flight to safety and uh, and a safe haven demand, we could expect gold to to spike at times like that. So that could be related to that. But then again, I mean, we're always talking about when uh, gold drops $14 all of a sudden that there's a lot of manipulation that goes on. So manipulation goes both ways sometimes. Um, I, right. Again, I'm not putting a lot of stock in it, but I actually was just writing in the uh, in the forecaster just last uh, last in last uh, Wednesday's edition. I was writing about how uh, we can get some indication of the actual physical demand for gold that underlies this, because, of course, you can't see that in the spot price, which is heavily manipulated by the paper side of it. But there is an ongoing high physical demand for gold that we see coming out of China and India uh, always, and, of course, other countries besides. And one way that we can get a handle on that is called the Gold Forward Offered Rate. It's G-O-F-O, GOFO for short. That's mm-hmm. the rate that's used to, when um, gold is put up as collateral against a dollar loan. And basically, it's the LIBOR rate, the London Interbank Offer Rate, minus the gold lease rate. And usually, that's a positive number because it costs more money. Uh, it costs more to borrow dollars than to borrow gold. But for several weeks, that has mostly been negative. Um, and that means it's now more expensive to borrow gold than to borrow dollars, i.e. people are expecting uh, future gold futures to be uh, spiking. So um, that's uh, there are a couple of different explanations why that might be the case, but one of them, of course, is that uh, physical um, markets are increasing. There is a demand for physical delivery that uh, people are wondering if there's going to be a, the markets are going to be able to cover or not. So, uh, so that's just one indicator that we can get un- if we look under the hood. There are lots of different indicators um, that that are like that. But basically, the point is physical demand for gold continues to accelerate. So, uh, I think that's where we have to be looking for, for the real. Price. So the LIBOR market, which is we know controlled, yes. and they've admitted <laughs> to that. Okay, I get it. Uh huh. <laughs> okay, we'll be back after this one minute, 10 second break. Stay tuned to the Power Hour with James Corbett. This is Joyce. And JD. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the Power Hour Radio Show. Ladies and gentlemen, it is straight up top of the hour. No matter where you are on planet Earth, we are here caring about your world and trying to do the next right and honorable thing. We are speaking today with Mr. James Corbett of thecorbettreport.com. Uh, super genius is what I like to call him when he's not around. Um, James, I have to tell you... Uh, this last weekend, when I was kind of getting ready to do our discussion today, uh, I delved into some of your podcasts and some of the podcasts that you are, go on to on other people's shows. And you had this, uh, this one that came out this last week, I think, about cognitive dissonance and uh, the, you know, the, the, the comparison of like free information versus intellectual property. And I tell you, man, I was riveted. I thought you made some really good points. Uh, but I wanted to get into just a little bit of that cognitive dissonance uh, sort of stuff if you wouldn't mind kind of going through that for just a second with us absolutely well this goes back to some experiments some psychological experiments that were conducted back in 1957 by i believe leon festinger and basically what he showed the the upshot of it is that uh, people will actually alter their perceptions of reality to conform to their worldview so if they have a worldview that is actually contradicted by the, the data or evidence that they're, they're getting from reality, they will actually, in their minds, alter that data or evidence to conform to that worldview. And this is important, obviously, when we're talking about the types of subjects that, that we talk about here on this program, where people have been conditioned all their lives to believe, um, well, for example, the, the, you know, the mainstream media has covered Benghazi. Uh, you know, it might have been a scandal, but it wasn't about you know, the CIA doing conspiracy. That's conspiracy theory. So it's a, it's a psychological process by which people can dismiss information that doesn't go along with what they already believe. And so it's, it's really important to, to examine that phenomenon, not only because it can help us, hopefully, to at least get people to see that they are, um, this, that they are not taking all of the information into account, but also, I think, because it reflects on everyone. I don't think any of us, as human beings, are really immune from this effect, and I think we'd be wrong to think so. So I think we also have to be constantly questioning what, what it is that we're taking in and what it is that we're not taking in when, it, when we're looking at data and evidence from the world um, to conform to our own worldview because everyone does have a worldview they all have a point of view um i guess you could call it a bias or an agenda but really it is just a point of view and we can't escape that the i think the best we can do is become conscious of the fact that we as human beings have this tendency to to try to dismiss information that doesn't conform to our worldview Mm mm-hmm well, I think that's super duper important, especially as you say, you know, discussing some of the topics that we're discussing now, we do get into that gray area where people, uh, you know, they'll, they're willing to accept a certain amount of information, but once you start asking them to either make like a spiritual change or uh, any type of information that could affect their, uh, you know, their perspective on, on where they really are in the world or how they really interact with other people, people do get a little bit hands off or they get a little bit, you know, they want to step back. And, uh, I think that, uh, breaking down those barriers or at least understanding that those barriers exist is so important. I really, uh, I respect you for, for kind of making that stance. Um, and what about your stance on the, you know, the intellectual property versus free information? Cause it seems to me like, you know, we're moving into a world where the internet is really taking over. I think I heard a prediction the other day that, you know, by 2025, something like 80% of the whole world is going to be on the internet. So we see the information starting to come from the bottom and going up as opposed to a top down mentality. And I really think that that's going to change the world. What do you think about that? 
Well, I, I certainly do as well. And in fact, I was at an open source uh, conference last uh, last November in France delivering a talk on open source journalism and the concept that open source doesn't just apply. People might know that from the software field talking about this collaborative online uh, phenomenon that's happening where people will share the, the source code of their program and and uh, they will open it up for people to take and, and adjust and, and, and play with as they will. And and uh, then they, they, they collaborate in groups to try to make the program better and what have you. And uh, mm-hmm. this is a phenomenon that, of course, we've seen in, in software uh, circles for quite a while, but it's it's catching on in a lot of different fields in surprising ways. So I was talking about the way that that can apply to journalism. Journalism used to be people in the ivory towers, you know, writing from the New York Times headquarters or what have you. But now it's the average person with a blog. And I think that is transforming the way we see the world. And the way yes, it is. Thank you so much for joining us today. Amazing information for everybody. And please go to Corbett Report and also theinternationalforecaster.com. Thank you so much for joining us today, James. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. You have a blessed day. We'll be back in three minutes. Stuart Road.